Shalom Mishpocha. I'm Rabbi Eric Carlson. Welcome back to our Kadima Talks on leadership, developing leadership skills and sets to expand your ability to grow in the kingdom of God, to lead others to the kingdom, to expand or grow your businesses, to lead your family, all critical aspects that we need today that's lacking in seminary, that's lacking in uh, religious training, and quite frankly, even in most colleges and business degrees. I want to share something with you before we get started. And, and again, we're continuing on in the essential skill sets for leadership. A verse that we're all familiar with is First Chronicles 12, verse 33 or 32, depending upon what translation you're reading. But this is of the descendants of Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. So these were men who were aware of the times and knew what to do about it. I've spoken on this scripture several times in the last six or seven months as our nation is in crisis right now and pandemics and rioting. And But we had 200 men here, 200, I'm going to read this here in a second, who were aware of the times and they knew what to do about it. But it says these were 200 leaders and all their kinsmen were under their command. So I just want to release you before we get back into some of our specific skill sets today. I want to release this to you because this is why we're doing this. We're not charging for this. Uh, or we're not trying to get a DVD kingdom here or uh, audio kingdom and sell this stuff. I, what we're wanting to do, what my heart's desire in this is to grow and expand the kingdom of God. And to do this, we must have men and women who are aware of the times, know what to do about it, and are leaders. And if we can replicate leaders, we can take this nation back. We can see the last great sovereign move of God, the third great awakening, sweep across this nation and around the world. But it takes men and women who are leaders, who are aware of the time, know what to do about it, with all their kinsmen under their command. This is critical. And again, we quote this scripture a lot, and, and I enjoy it myself, but we tend to glaze over that they were leaders. And so we're establishing here leadership to raise up leaders in the body of Messiah. So to pick up where we left off last week, we're talking about skill sets. And listen, if you're coming into ministry, if you're called to ministry, if you're called to be a rabbi, if you're called to be a rabbitson, if you're called to be a psalmist or worship leader, if you're called to be youth ministry or an evangelist and reach out to go to other nations and bring people into the kingdom, one of the most critical aspects that you have to have an essential skill set is you have to be able to work well with others. Listen, serving Adonai is about people. We're in the people business. If you're a leader and you have people working for you, you are in the people business. If you're in the military and have people under your command, you're in the people business. And as I shared, uh, I think three weeks ago now, it's even harder and more critical in an organization such as ours because over two-thirds of what gets done in this congregation is done by volunteers. So they've got to be motivated. They want to be you know, part of this organization that has a clear vision, that knows where it's going. They want to buy into it, have ownership in this, and participate in the expansion of the kingdom of God. But to do so, you have to be able to get along with others because serving God is about people. If you hate people or don't get along with people, you will have great difficulties and you will be an ineffective leader. In my 22 years of naval service, I come across a few leaders 
who loathed people, who didn't like to be around people, and they were not good leaders. And they had bad commands that didn't do well, they didn't fare well, and they never went very far in their career in the Navy. You have to be able to relate across a large cross-section of socioeconomic and cultural boundaries. The ability to work well with others hinges upon several factors. One is loving your neighbor as yourself, as Yeshua commanded us to do. In a congregation, in a business, in the world today, we deal with a large variety of people, and you have to be able to have respect and appreciation for all, as they are uniquely created in God's image. They are all special, and God loves them. And we have to be able to look at people through God's eyes. We must view them through the love of God and not our limited physical eyes of this world. Developing good leadership skill sets and characteristics is learning to love others as yourself. It's on the top five of our priority list. 1 John 4, verses 18 through 31, it says, There is no fear in love. There's few words more profound in our day and time today than this. There is no fear in perfect love. Let me say that again. There is no fear in love. On the contrary, love that has achieved its goal gets rid of fear because fear has to do with punishment. The person who keeps fearing has not been brought to maturity in regard to love. We ourselves love now because he loved us first. And if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. This is so profound. If we comprehend and pause how supernatural it is, I shared this recently in a Shabbat message. There are over 750 megabytes of information in the DNA strand. It's so much information, it would fill 500, 300-page books. And of that, 0.001% of those over 2 million chromosomes, only 0.001% is what makes us different. And in other words, over 99% of all of our DNA match, regardless if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, First Nation, Jew or Gentile, we are all created in God's image. And those few chromosome sets that develop our skin color, our eye color, our hair color, our height, it's in the minutia. It's so far buried that most scientists don't even study it. It's not what's important. So if we say, I love God, and harbor hatred in your heart against a brother or a sister, that person, 1 John 4 verse 20 says, is a liar. For if a person does not love his brother whom he has seen, then he cannot love God whom he has not seen. Yes, this is the command we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother too. This is a foundational principle in all that we do in life. Does it necessarily mean you're going to be best friends with that people? No. Do we have a reality that there are character differences? We're drawn to some people, others not so much. But that doesn't mean we don't love them. And I shared last week, love is a command. We are to love the Lord thy God. Love means that I would help that person no matter what the circumstances are. Love means that I will intercede for that person, and if they're in trouble, step in to save their life. Love means if that person has a need, I will stand in the gap and do my best to provide for that need, no matter who they are or where they're from. 
In order to do this, to be able to work with others, you yourself have to be a secure person. You can't have an identity crisis. You have to know who you are in Messiah, because as a leader, you will continuously be placed in situations that test both your inner security as a person and your self-discipline and your self-control. Through this, we learn then how to carry ourselves and relate to others. I'm not offended or fearful of anyone else because I know who I am in Yeshua. I'm not upset or fearful if we get persecuted by Orthodox Jews. I know who I am in Yeshua. I'm not upset if we get persecuted or oppressed by Christians because they don't understand why we're following the word. Why is that? Because I'm secure in who I am in Yeshua. This is critical. Galatians 5, starting at verse 14. For the whole of the Torah is summed up in this one sentence. All of it in one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on snapping at each other and tearing each other to pieces, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. What I'm saying is this, verse 16, run your lives by the Spirit, by the Ruach. Then you will not do what your old nature wants. And why is it? Because our old nature is corrupt. It's the ways of the flesh. And as Paul said, I shared this again last week, we have to crucify that flesh every day. And when we do that, we will live by the Spirit. Verse 17, for the old nature wants what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit wants what is contrary to the old nature. These oppose each other so that you find yourselves unable to carry out your good intentions. So this is critical here. And I talked, we ended last week with having a balanced life. You've got to have a balanced life, but you have got to be self-controlled. You've got to be secure in who you are, because if you're having opposing internal struggles over who you are between impurity and purity, between unholiness and holiness, between sin and righteousness, then you're not going to be able to help anybody else. Verse 18, but it says, but if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not in subjection to the system that results from perverting the Torah into legalism. And it is perfectly evident what the old nature does. It expresses itself in sexual immorality, impurity, and indecency. Yeshua said, you will know them by their fruit. So if you look at the history behind a person, and if it's filled with sexual immorality, impurity, and indecency, then you know that that person is operating in the flesh. But if you look at this person and you see truth, righteousness, and good deeds done, then you know that person is working through the spirit and are living a godly life. Verse 20, back to Galatians 5, involvement with the occult and with drugs, infuting, fighting, becoming jealous, and getting angry, and selfish ambition, and factualism, intrigue, and envy, and drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you now, as I've warned you before, those who do such things have no share in the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness humility, and self-control. And nothing in the Torah stands against such things. Moreover, those who belong to the Messiah, Yeshua, have put their old nature to death on the stake. They have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. Verse 25, since it is through the Spirit that we have life, let it also be through the Spirit that we order our lives day by day. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So to do this, to be an effective leader, you have to develop a little tact, a little diplomacy. You have to move in what I like to call care front instead of confront. When you care front, you avoid offense. 
tact is a skill in dealing with persons in difficult situations through a quick but delicate sense of what is fitting and appropriate, avoiding offense. Diplomacy and skill in managing the affairs of any kind, dealing with the delicate and difficult situations of people's lives, requires carefulness and a proper handling. Those who can do so have the skill of reconciliation. And this is critical because we have been given the ambassadorship and the message of reconciliation. That's what we're about. Because if we can reconcile between people, then we can reconcile between people and God. And that is what it's all about. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Proverbs 17, verses 9 and verse 19 He who conceals an offense promotes love, but he who harps on it can separate even close friends. So it's the ability to over, mature believers cannot be offended in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Mature believers cannot be offended in the kingdom of God. We know to put these things in subjection to love and love covers many sins. Verse 19 says, those who love quarreling, love giving offense. Those who make their gates tall are courting disaster. Next. Leaders must have courage. You have to have courage to do what is right, regardless of contemporary opinions or even repercussions. To stand against the stream of deception, there must be courage to stand tall, to stand on truth, to stand on equality, to stand for justice. This is especially true when you're confronting correction or conflict, even discipline situations. Though unpleasant, it has to be done in love for the greater health of the kahil of the congregation, as well as the congregate themselves. This involves uh, having to deal with personal fears, hesitations, and even our innate human aversion to conflict. Humans hate conflict. Listen, a decorated military hero once said the difference between a coward and a hero is this. A coward and hero are both afraid, but the hero turns in the right direction. Paul often displayed great courage, resolve, and obedience in many of the paralyzing situations he faced. In great transparency, he said in 1 Corinthians 2.3, Also, I myself was with you as somebody weak, nervous, and shaking all over from fear. He faced many conflicts, yet he admitted here that he was so fearful sometimes that he was shaking, that he was weak and nervous at times. He challenged angry mobs. He had challenges to his leadership, but he faced all of these challenges with great courage. Unlike another example we have is King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 24, Saul said to Shmuel, Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the order of Adonai in your words too because I was afraid of the people and listened to what they said. So we have two opposing forces of courage. Paul, the New Testament Paul, Shaul, faced many challenges, but he prevailed over these challenges and kept pursuing the goal. He knew what he was called to do. He had a clear vision, and despite the tribulations of this world, He continued to do what God called him to do with great success. King Saul, on the other hand, had a weak character. He had integrity issues, and he violated the words of both Adonai and what Shmuel had told him to do because what he was afraid of the people and listened to what they said. The real issue with Saul was he never won the inward battle that required courage. We make the comparison between David and Saul and teach that Saul lost it all because he never repented. But it's a lot more complex than that. He lacked courage. 
Courage is the mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. I can tell you that this is a profound thing we must have as congregation leaders because you are leading the people often to withstand fear and pandemics and viruses and civil unrest and rioting to face difficulties. We go against the flow oftentimes with what the government say who are trying to silence us because we stand for light and truth and the darkness doesn't like that. Azruach in Hebrew, which means courage, valor, daring, or bravery. The opposite of courage is cowardice. Cowardice is the lack of courage. The Tanakh records that Saul was handsome. He was a well-built tall man. In 1 Samuel 9, 2, he had a son named Shaul, Saul, who was young and good-looking. Among the people of Israel, there was no one better looking than he. He stood head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. Listen, the world seeks. It even favors those that are handsome and good-looking. So many people follow what's happening in Hollywood. Why? Because these are handsome, good-looking people. They are pleasing to the eye. But the outward looks belie what's on the inside. Character, honor, integrity, and most of all, courage are not determined by the looks and the build of a man and is contrary to the world's thoughts. On the inside, Saul was a little and ugly. And when Saul faced inward challenges, he consistently panicked and failed. Now, here's a key to take home in this. Both courage and cowardice are contagious. One leads others to the other. When Saul fled, so did his men. 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistine pressed their attack on Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines, leaving their dead on Mount Geboah. The Philistine pursued and overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistine killed Jonathan, Avinadav, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The fighting went hard against Saul. Then the archers overtook and wounded him so that he was in agony. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer refused. He was too frightened. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the far side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistine came and they lived in them. So cowardice is contagious, but courage is also contagious. Because when one man stands, others will follow. In Matthew 4, starting at verse 23, Yeshua went all over the Galil, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people from every kind of sickness and disease. Word of him spread throughout all Syria and people brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, and those held in the power of demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25, huge crowds followed him from the Galil, the ten towns, Jerusalem, Judah, and ever Yarden. When one man stands, others will follow. Without courage, it doesn't matter what your intentions are, how good-looking you are, how well-built you are, how wealthy you are. Without courage, failure is imminent. 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 24, Paul said to Samuel, Shmuel, I have sinned. I violated the order of Adonai in your words too because I was afraid of the people and listened to what they said. 
Saul had good intentions when he presented the offering unto the Lord, but he let his fear that people would desert him control his actions. He was not a man of integrity or character. The right choices, this is why courage is required, because the right choices are not always the most popular or politically correct. Without courage, you are a slave of your own insecurity and possessiveness. Saul was captive to his fears of being replaced by David. First Samuel 18, verses 28 and through 29, when the king realized how much the Lord was with David and how much Michael loved him, he became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Without courage, he had cowardice, and he had insecurity beyond measure. He was afraid of David. He was insecure in his own kingship because of his cowardice and lack of courage. A leader without courage will never gain the victory. Saul employed a necromancer to seek Samuel's counsel when the Lord had departed from him. In 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 7, it says, the lack of courage will sabotage a leader. Saul's lack of courage cost him everything. Why didn't he repent? In 1 Samuel 28, verses 7 through 19, he actually goes to the witch of Endor, a necromancer, and he covers his true identity was, and she literally calls up the ghost, the spirit of Samuel, who then tells the king, he's done. Saul, you're done. He committed a grave sin. Saul was unable to admit his fault. Pride and lack of courage kept him from repenting. Courage is the key to our success and victory. Courage is a key to a humble and successful life. Courage allows you to be transparent, to repent of your sins, to stand in truth before others in the kingdom of God. Matthew 9, verse 22, Yeshua turned, saw her, and said, Courage, daughter, your trust has healed you. And she was instantly healed. Courage was what brought this woman to get through the crowd and to touch the tzitzit, the hem of his garment. She knew that if she could get to Yeshua, she would be healed and set free. And her courage in the face of adversity brought her a profound and supernatural miracle. In Matthew 14, verse 27, but at once Yeshua spoke to them, courage, he said, it is I stop being afraid when he comes to the Talmudim on the boat. Mark 6, verse 50, for they had all seen him and were terrified. However, he spoke to them, courage, he said, it is I stop being afraid. And in James 5, verse 8, it says, you too be patient, keep up your courage for the Lord's return is near. That is a word directly for us today in the face of great adversity and all that we're struggling with in our country today. Keep up your courage for the Lord's return is truly near. Another essential trait we must have as an effective and profound leader is to be self-disciplined. Before you can lead others, you have to be able to lead yourself. You have to be self-disciplined in prayer, self-disciplined in keeping yourself from temptation, self-disciplined in prayer and fasting, self-disciplined in reading the word. Listen, in pursuit of God's destiny for your own life, you must have inward self-control. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, he who controls his temper is better than a war hero. He who rules his spirit better than he who captures a city. Too many believers want to take on principalities and powers 
when they haven't conquered their own selfish emotions. It's often easier to lead others than yourself, yet in time, areas of immaturity will always come to light. Leaders must be able to submit to the Holy Spirit, to the Ruach HaKodesh's effort to bring them to that place of self-discipline. And we talked about this before, being a self-starter. This is part of being self-disciplined, to have initiative, to do what's necessary and required to seek the goal and be successful in the kingdom of God. Our goal should be to learn the hard way, the difficult, prolonged way, avoiding unnecessary negative impacts on the lives around us. There's never, and I shared this several weeks ago, there's no shortcut to this. There's no 90-day or 180-day wonders. Listen, we want to take the long, effective road to develop wisdom, to develop courage and integrity, to obtain the characteristics of what we need through the kingdom of God to be who God wants us to truly be. And in this longer road, you avoid the unnecessary necessary impact of failure and failure upon those who are around you and in your congregation. Experience is the best schoolmaster, (laughs) but the price is high. If you're paying a heavy price in a position of leadership, others are paying with you. That's the problem. Commitment to self-discipline, self-control lessens the price that we and others have to pay. Find time for prayer and solitude. It doesn't come easy. Other great leaders from Lincoln to Churchill to Edison followed Yeshua's example of setting aside quiet times, strategic withdrawal to that secret place is necessary for success. George Washington said, discipline is the soul of an army. It makes small numbers formidable, procures success to the weak and esteem to all. Harry S. Truman said, in reading the lives of great men, I found that the first victory they won was over themselves. Self-discipline with all of them came first. Martin Luther King Jr. said the hope of a secure and livable world lies with disciplined nonconformists who are dedicated to justice, peace, and brotherhood. H.P. Lydon said what we do on some great occasions will probably depend on what we already are. And what we are will be the result of previous years of self-discipline. I believe that with all my heart. Discipline is doing what you really do not want to do so that you can do what you really want to do. What makes it hard is that in your own human nature, we don't want to do certain things. We don't want to practice. We don't want to make this muscle memory. We don't want to take the time to do it. We have a tendency to be undisciplined in areas that we need to be disciplined in. So we have to take control of our actions, our emotions. We have to take captive our thoughts and submit them to Messiah. We must be disciplined in all that we do to see success and victory in the kingdom of God. We have to be creative thinkers. We have to think outside the box. Listen, the foundational principles of the gospel never changes. The methods do. The Talmudim, the disciples 2,000 years ago, would have been shocked at how we get the message out today through Kadima Talks, through podcasts, through iTunes, through live stream, through Facebook, through uh, Instagram. This was incomprehensible to them 2,000 years ago. So we have to think outside the box and use non-conventional sources to get the message of the good news out to every venue that we can do. It's the best way to do something isn't always the way it's always been. So we're not going to walk 
and spend days walking on the road between cities when I can get in a vehicle and be there in 15 minutes and be an effective communicator and share even more about the good news of the kingdom of God. We want to be effective. And to have this type of orientation, to think outside the box, makes us open to new ideas and new methods in accomplishing our goals. And let me say this again. The foundations don't change. The reality is, the truth is, you must have Yeshua, Jesus, as your substitute sacrifice. Blood washes away sins. You must have a sacrifice. To be saved in the kingdom, you have to receive Yeshua. How I get that message to you, the method, that is being evolving, and it's new every day. And every day, we're developing new strategies from heaven, new tactics to get the message out quickly and effectively on a broader scale. The kingdom of God is not static. It's always moving and changing. We have to move with it. We have to be people of change. This is why we have to update and think outside the box and have new approaches to get to the goal, to get the good news spread. New circumstances, require new approaches. We always have to have an open mind and think outside the box. It's not making changes just to change, but to be effective and reach the goal, to run the good race, as Paul said. We must be heavenly focused and centered in all that we do and not do this in a worldly sense. Too many attempt to use the world's way of doing things in the kingdom of God, and those two are as far from each other as east is from the west. In Matthew 16, verse 23, Yeshua turned his back on Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're an obstacle in my path because your thinking is from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. So we always have to have God's perspective in all that we do, but that doesn't mean we can't think outside the box and ask for new strategies, new ways to share the good news that the kingdom of God may expand. My next and last one today is you have to be able to make decisions. I spent 22 years in the Navy, and I qualified diving officer on my last two submarines. As I came into my second submarine, since I'd already done this, I was probably, if you will say, a little unprepared. I was a little cocky. It was a new ship, a newer class. And so I'd gotten over the technical data. I'd gone through all the numbers. I'd read all the books. I had all the technical data. And so when I sat down with the commanding officer of the ship, he caught me off guard because he was nice. He was gracious. He called me Eric. He said, come in, sit down. He poured me a cup of coffee, asked me about Barb, my wife, the children, how were things were going. And now I'm starting to get a little sweaty under the collar. I'm like, where is he going with this? I, I, I know the questions are coming. I know, you know. And so knowing that I'd previously done this before, he knew I had the technical knowledge. But here's what he asked me. He sat me down and he said, uh, Eric, what's the worst possible thing you could do as diving officer? Now my mind was whirling and I'm going through various casualties and scenarios from loss of power to flooding to uh, a, a torpedo attack or being depth charged. What's the most catastrophic thing? My mind's spinning like a binnacle of 5,000 RPM. He reached out, touched my arm and says, Eric, what's the worst thing you could do as diving officer. And I sat back and I, and I stared at him for a second. He looked at me. He said, nothing. The worst possible thing you can do is nothing. In any scenario, any casualty, any issue that's gone wrong, inability to make a decision would sink the ship and kill every crew member. 
the worst possible thing I could do is nothing. And that's a life lesson I've carried with me the rest of my life. A person who habitually vacillates and can't make a decision will make a poor leader and others will be harmed and it will be the end of a ministry. Decisiveness is born out of conviction, of knowing what God wants for you, of what his vision is for you, and what the right course of action is according to his word, to his son and his Holy Spirit. Good, great, well-known leaders gather as much information as possible. They look at the situation from every angle. They get counsel from others. They pray. They seek God, but they come to an answer. They make a decision with the conviction of the Lord. Proverbs 1 verse 5 says, someone who is already wise will hear and learn still more. Someone who already understands will gain the ability to counsel well. Proverbs 15 22 says, plans fail when there is no counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. You've got to make a decision. Good, bad, or indifferent, make a decision. If it's slightly off, you can alter your course of attack and bring it back into correction in line with the word of God, but you've got to make a decision. And here's some insight. Not everyone will always agree with you, but you can't as a leader let this affect you. You've got to be above the process because if you've sought God's counsel, you know the vision, you've heard his voice, and you've sought counsel, you know it's the right decision. Follow that decision. Don't have doubt. The doubters never receive. You will occasionally make a wrong decision, but the importance of this is to fall forward, as John Maxwell says, and learn from that mistake and move forward. Here's one of my favorite quotes that I actually have on my wall in my office. I've carried this through my entire naval career and has set the course for me many, many times in my life, especially when I was facing critical judgment in a decision I had made or an area where the congregation was growing. And I'm going to quote this to you. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out where the strong man stumbled, or where a doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows with the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause. The man who at best knows the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, fails while daring greatly, so that his place will never be with those cold, timid souls who never knew victory or defeat. Again, this was President Teddy Roosevelt. Remember, the worst thing you can do is nothing. Be a man or woman of action. Stand for truth, justice, and equality. Move in the spirit of God and be a transformer of your world around you. Interject yourself into history and change it for the kingdom of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.